This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Hi, greetings and salutations, Nubians, and good everything. <laughs> good everything. What's, what's good, Dr. Carr? Bookless. Hey, <laughs> down here with your people in the ATL. I had to come down here. Everybody's saying hello. I, I, I'm kidding for one last time. I'm gonna have to be in disguise. I can't go nowhere now. They like, right. hey, it's, 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 <laughs> no, but you know what this is? This is family. You know, like we have created uh multi-generational families all over the world, and Absolutely. ATL is my spot. We just were there uh, a few weeks ago for our Foolishness Friday Live. Yeah. Shout out to Eldridge and his crew that you hooked up with last night. But yes, we yeah. are yeah, we in them we in them streets and the people are, you know, it's family. It feels it feels good actually, you know, to be no in the airport, you know, like you know, if something jumps off, it's like okay. Oh, nothing gonna jump off on you. You are completely covered. And that when brother Elders came up, Elders Washington, that's the first thing he said, Karen, that's my girl. No, I ride with Karen. So yeah, me too. He said, No, nah, you understand, that's my girl. Tell her, tell her, take this picture, send it to her right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's my baby. Yes, that's it. <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we covered in the blood, but um, no question. You know, we were we were talking off mic and hello everyone, you know, because we we had to catch up because Car Doctor Car's in the streets. That's all right. Streets. Surgically, surgically in and out. Although I've been here now, oh my goodness, they were shooting people when I came out the sky. I got out the ground. I said, wait a minute, they killing people in the yeah. AJC. This was the headline. We don't have to live like. Hey, hold on, hold on. Let me solo lay off. You see that one dead, four injured, and this cat, what was it? He um, what's his name? Uh, Dion Patterson, he's what, 24 years old, showed up on 11th floor of the building to, for late for a medical appointment. They told me he had to come back. He said, "Okay, I'll be back." Whatever. Now one dead, the four today's AJC says that um, the other victims are improving, but you know it's crazy. They just we are just out here shooting in these streets. Yeah, he couldn't get his medicine, and so he was. I mean. I, something's wrong something's wrong i mean you know fucker carlson gave us an insight into some you know some people's minds which is why i'm like we focus so much on the white and the black but there's something really inherently broken in our humanity you know jordan neely is on the subway and you know um and and he's not here anymore because somebody took it upon themselves to take his life. He wasn't swinging on nobody. He was all the thing he was insulting was the air. He was assaulting the air with his breath and yelling and screaming because he was hungry and thirsty. No one fed him or gave him water, y'all Christians. And, no, they're not Christians. And um, you know, and and someone put a chokehold on for fifteen minutes, Doctor Carr. And I think about it, you know, like yes, the in, in the media. Oh, he he died. No, he was killed. And the 44 arrests, I was like, he could have been arrested 150 times. He could have been arrested 100 times. He didn't deserve to lose his life that day. And the fact that we devalue people who are unhoused and have mental illnesses in this country speaks volumes about um, why AI may end us. Because, you know, it's... Uh, well, well, there it is. What did... What did, uh, what did um... The character, the, the main program in the Matrix say, I have a theory. You all are a virus. You got to be eliminated. <laughs> and so, you know, Mr. Anderson, you all are a virus. You, you know, you power you power our machines, but once we get an alternate source, we just get rid of you. It's not a problem. You so, know, you know I, mean, it's crazy. I mean, even in Atlanta, if the, if people are okay because the, the shooter was black, you know, or, if, you know, people were okay because the Marine was white and the victim was black, you know, it's like, we, we're choosing size over life and death? Is that what nah, we 
No, nah, it's not. I mean, and, and you know, Ben, I mean, this is a black city and the whole place was on edge, you know, um, you my people are down here. So I, the first thing I did was reach out, you know, you talked about Rebo Ford, Kelsey, who was a doctor on staff at Morehouse School of Medicine. They were like, you know, she back and forth to Grady all the time. Grady was on lockdown. Then I, I wasn't even close to Midtown, but I mean, I saw I can hear the emoji. Um, Thursday night at the banquet, he's over at, at Georgia State, Navarre State, Midtown, near Midtown. Everybody's frozen in place. It, the color didn't matter. The whole fact is the guns. This is the middle of the day, school day, you know, senior day. They got half a day. They walking around. I mean, somebody shooting, everybody froze. They're not worried about the race of the shooter. Right. And, and the victims in this city are going to be more likely black. And you, you, I mean, man, I know you remember. You probably had to cover it when, you know, they, 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 it was a black, when a black cop that shot Patrick Dorismont and then Giuliani jumps out with his juvenile record that's supposed to be sealed. What that got to do with the fact that the cat wasn't, he was in plain clothes without the badge on and this boy's dead in front of a club. Because because the cop made the first move. These are hunters. They're hunting. And, and, and you know, the, their fear is that they will get hit first. But guess what? That fear is a real fear. You should fear for your life now because if you're going to kill somebody, What's the point? And and like you said, we're past now the thing where, you know, respect law enforcement. Why? What in the history of this country are you telling you to respect law enforcement? And your first thing is you've elevated your voice. You tell you, and we've all written, those of us who, you know, written a New York City subway or anime. Man, you like it's a complete show. You liable to see something every second. <laughs> I was gonna say, well, I had a conversation with my students uh yesterday about it because they all take the subway. Mm -hmm. Um, and one of them said something really poignant like the subway is the one place where you're gonna see every class. It's a no culture, more. you know, it's a culture. Every class, every background takes the subway, millions of people every day, and it's relatively no incidents. Everyone has seen someone have a mental breakdown on no the question. subway. Everyone no has question. seen someone even act violent on the subway. It, no is, not, it is not unusual. That's right. For, for a 24-year-old a, a uh, former Marine to apply a choke, take it upon himself to be a vigilante, Bernard Getz, so I brought up that name in class. Oh, did anybody know it? Nobody. These kids are, you know, they're 20 years old. They don't know Bernard Getz. 1981, he was on the subway, got accosted by some thugs, some young people, some people that were harassing him. He went and got a gun and was like, never again. Three years later, four guys come up to him, asking, not asking, tell him, give me your money. And he starts shooting. He paralyzes one of them. And and he got convicted and sued and lost this lawsuit because that you should not be able to say Gotham, you know, even though people like to say it. This is not a place where you can just do what you want. But also, what made that Marine think he could take just, I'm going to. And then two other people helped him. So it looked like Derek Chauvin all over again. How about that? Except, the except, except in the body of people that were did not have the authority, not that Chauvin had the authority to take George Floyd's life, but it's it's strange to me because I know you and I wouldn't, you know, even if the brother you you shared this the the, the incident in in um I think it was Starbucks or something. Oh yeah, we were in Panera. 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 And I've been back it, over there since. Right, right, but you know it could have escalated, but you came in and easily you, you de-escalated. A person was having That's a situation. Right. But that's our responsibility to other human beings because we don't provide enough care. And I'm sorry, I'm very upset about it because it speaks to the lack of like actual just just human decency. That's right. That, um, yeah. So he was an inconvenient person. How about that? Inconvenient to somebody. But like you said, 
on the scale of what you see on the New York City subway, you may see somebody strip down. You're going to see somebody break up. You're going to see a slap box or a fight. Somebody going to ask you for some money. This don't even really rank. The idea, and so, yeah, I mean, no, no, that, that Marine was defending the homeland. He right. defended his homeland. God bless him. Now, right. the question well, is... Uh, I mean, he feels deputized, though, right? So that's the... Okay, that's how, how Rittenhouse felt deputized, right? No question. So, you know, the Proud Boys felt deputized, right? So, that's right. like, we... We, we have codified in our laws this this hidden understanding among some people that you have the right to uh, police bodies. That's exactly right. Thank you. Fugitive slave law still on the books. Oh, no question. In practice. I mean, it's so funny you say that because uh, all the medics you said all the time, he says, you know, and, and Donald Temple in D.C. always says, he said, Dred Scott, y'all like Dred Scott was overturned, was it? When, when Roger Tani says that there are no uh, laws that white people have to respect in this country when it comes to black people, the essence of that law is still in fact. You just out here killing people. And and the state backs you. Kyle Rittenhouse is walking around free. Hell, he might come to U.S. Congress if he's running the right district. They'd be glad to send him here. I mean, and here in Georgia, you see Fannie Willis. This is today's Atlanta. Uh, Kemp just signed a bunch of bills yesterday. It's on the front page of today's paper. Big raises, cuts get Kemp's signature, big raises, you understand? Budget increase, mental health funds, veto, Governor Vito's $30 million in spending, this clan adjacent piece of work. But one of the things that the legislature passed was a law, a bill, that is now being signed into law that increases oversight, including the ability to remove local prosecutors. This bastard's going after Fannie Willis. Because she get ready to do this thing, and you see these these the, these state house clan uh, adjacent white boys then flip, and so she gets she lining up beautifully. So they passed a bill that got to Kemp's desk that says now the governor can take out the local DAs, the elected DAs, and she's already said this is race. So no, they they're not just deputized; they're protected by the state. That's why I don't say our laws. I'm like all of them. It's not our laws. We we got to fight for our lives. Why we don't operate by the same laws? It's Dred Scott law. You so do what you want. This week, I, uh, I talked with Dr. Jacqueline Bottle-Morris. She wrote a book uh, about the invention of whiteness. And, uh, you know, I invite people on to, to you know, kind of, we, we do this on Saturday. So you give me, you give me an arsenal of, of questions uh, to ask. You, right? You're being very kind. You've been doing this a long time. I'm just glad now to be part of it. It shapes how I, how I talk to people because I, you know, there was a time when I would just be very happy that a person without melanin would do this work. Mm -hmm. I've had Robin D'Angelo on a lot, Tim Wise was on a lot. Uh, I'm always going to bring on Jane Elliott, you know, because I feel like it is the responsibility of white people to gather, gather the folk up and change the conversation around race. It's their responsibility to gather the 54% and the other 70% of white men that feel like it's okay to, to put a, a Pussy grabbing degenerate into the White House. On tape. Did you hear him? Did you hear him? Oh my goodness. The the, the audio of him is stunning to me. Y'all yeah. will vote for him again. It is so ridiculous. But I, I brought her on and she said something uh that I didn't know. Yeah, I knew about Baker's Rebellion, but she was like, you know, whiteness did not make it into, into law until the 1680s. And I was like, this country wasn't even a country. And nope. she said, exactly. So I said, who? Who, you know, who decreed that a black person couldn't testify because that was one of the laws codified, right? Right. In court, couldn't couldn't defend themselves. Who who decreed that? And she said King Charles. And I said, interesting. Today, 
today there was a coronation, and uh, this is Bridgerton weekend, which is interesting too. So, hey, I was cracking up. Y'all talking about them writers? Yo, <laughs> it's the writer's strike. I'm mean, we we come back to that, but damn it. Anyway, go ahead. It's Bridgeton Weekend. No. Bridgeton Weekend, and we are obsessed with royalty and, and, and this and that. I'm, I'm sure some of you will be getting your stones and I'm things. I'm definitely obsessed with royalty. There's the Queen of Soul, Aretha Franklin. The queen queen of, of, anyway, but go ahead. King of, the King of Rock and Roll. Which is no question. Hey, the, the Godfather of Soul, birthday we just passed. He's a tourist yeah. too, uh, James Brown. Yes. <laughs> so, so I was like, King Charles is, uh, you know, that's interesting. It was a King Charles that that did this because he was like, oh, no, folk are coming together. What do we do? Divide and conquer. OK, uh, so you got these indentured people with the enslaved people and the other folk are disgruntled and it's all coming towards us. OK, yes. let's create whiteness. Um, and it, it was probably, you know, it was easy because you already had class. So they just created another class. Right. That's exactly right. Um, so this is poignant that you know we're we're dealing with a King Charles today, and it was a King Charles that that first introduced this notion that people are white and black. Um, but is that is that how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, it's funny when when you were talking to her, and I listened to, it and I said, you know, we've we've talked about that. And in fact, she's just really reinforcing something we've had an ongoing conversation. Remember when the Queen uh, Elizabeth passed? She's Elizabeth II. The first was the one that preceded Charles II. And we talked about exactly what she's talking about now. Yeah, we talked about that. It just it just shows you how recent this criminal enterprise is. You know, automatic uh, say, you know, y'all call them founding fathers. I call them fleeing felons. And that's what they were. I mean, they're literally coming on the other side of the earth, taking stuff from people and then setting up their criminal enterprise. So when you all were talking, and that, that sent me to her book. I, I, I read the introduction to Birth of a White Nation, the second edition, after you said, oh, you know, check this out. It's okay. And it's interesting because, you know, we, we continue to talk about we. We continue to talk about our democracy, attacks and assaults on our democracy. There's no we and there's no our and there's no democracy. It never was. And even now, something that is so embarrassingly obvious that when we think about it, it comes, oh, yeah, right. These folk now who were saying we owe the United States, uh, the U.S. owes us. And these people in this American descendants of slavery or whatever, you know, well, we, you go get your reparations from England. You go get yours from France. We're going to get ours from the United States. Hold on, fool. Yes, fool. I'm saying fool. Hold on, fool. They came and got you. Who, the United States? No, exactly. There was no United States. This was the Spanish. And my man, Sam Livingston, uh, who's over at Morehouse, uh, we were together yesterday with the young brothers over at uh, Davis Bozeman, as I said, Molly's uh, spot. And he was reminded, he's from South Carolina. He said, when you see those Seminoles and you see how they're dressed differently than a lot of the other indigenous people, it's because they were influenced by the West Africans. He said, they look like they're from Mali. He said, I'm from the area. I'm from the country in South Carolina. We don't call it the Seminole Wars. We call it the Gullah Seminole Wars, the Gullah Geechee, because they the Africans protected them. And that was the Spanish. The Spanish were going to take everything from what we would now call Maryland south, La Florida. That's where they were. And so when the British come, as we as we talked about this, we won't go over it again today, because again, we had this hell of a repository. I was talking yesterday to Brother Max, who's a newbie, he probably here this morning. The repository we have. What you all were talking about, when you were talking about with uh, Jacqueline uh, Badalola, you can now go back and footnote that because the Spanish come first and the Dutch and then the English, when they come in, as we talked about, you've got James, Jamestown, 
you got the virgin queen. <laughs> you know, we start talking about Elizabeth and they have these colonists in a pension movement. England doesn't want to pay premium costs for tobacco. And so these white boys get here and say, we got everything we need. They want to keep going west, but you got to split in the Virginia economy. At first, it's a private enterprise. Then, you know, Charles comes in, who's restored to the crown because they take out the predecessor to him. When he comes in in 1660, it's like, you know, maybe we need to bring this back under royal control. Why? Because and maybe we need to negotiate with these indigenous people. But no, some of these people want to keep going. That's where Bacon's Rebellion starts. This guy says, no, we want to expand. We want to war with the Indians. But the problem they have, of course, is England is in an international conflict with Holland, with Spain. So they tell their colonists, you can't trade with the Dutch. You can't trade with anybody but us. Why? We want to control the, the, the tobacco trade. And we don't want to pay y'all for this tobacco. Plus, if you expand... The tobacco that you're growing is on land that isn't good for tobacco, which means the price is going down. So all these factors are going in. Is it a black-white thing? No, as you said, it's economics. But they pulled us into this mess. And so what you basically, so people say, oh, we're going to get reparations from the United States. Hold on, fool. There was no United States. You should be teaming up with the Jamaicans and the Trinis to sue, and the Ghanaians to sue the British, too. Wait, no, hold up, fool. You should be teaming up with the Puerto Ricans and the Dominicans to sue the Spanish, too. You should be, I mean, what are you talking about? Because we bought into this notion of United States as a we, as a kind, as, as, as something that means something. And it doesn't. So, yeah, so when you all were talking, when, when Charles II tries to split up this thing by saying, you know, okay, race is going to be a dividing factor. He's already sent the edict out. Was this like, was it 16, I think 76, I guess it was, where he says, anybody who was in rebellion with this dude, Bacon, y'all got X number of days, I think it was like 20 days, something like, come back to the crown and you'll be forgiven. When he writes the edict, he doesn't realize that Bacon had died the day before. He got the flux, what they call the watery flux. The guy's dead. But I'm saying all that to say that. Dysentery. Dysentery, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's what they called it back then, right? Dysentery, right? And so I guess to make a long story very short, race as we know it was invented in that process, you know, I mean, and, and in her introduction, um, uh, Professor uh, Bachelora cites a lot of those people, David Rodiger and Noel Ignatiev, who've been writing about this stuff for years, how the Irish became white and wages of whiteness and all that. But the concept behind it is so much older than 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 Charles II. I mean, you know, Benjamin Isaac, when I was reading, I was thinking to myself, Benjamin Isaac wrote a book a few years ago called Racism in Classical Antiquity. You see it in the Greeks and the Romans. You see, I mean, so, but the, but the way we, it operates here, yeah, it's global, but in the U.S., it's unique because you get on a plane in Dublin, you get on a plane in Madrid, you get on a plane, you know, and, and, and come here, you land at JFK. He said, I'm Spanish. Yeah, but now you get to be white, too. Oh, okay, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take it. So, yeah, it's, you know. But yeah, it's a hell of a drug. It's a hell of a drug. I just hell of a drug. I'll bring it up because, you know, whatever um, this space here is, um, you know, set up for the breadcrumbs for you to follow and Absolutely. do your own research. And however, you get in, however you get in, it came before Columbus, you know, to know that black people were here before. However you get in, you know, Dr. Carr, you, you drop these breadcrumbs, they get sure. reinforced and then you go back. You know, I know sometimes people get mad like when they tell people things and then they hear it from somebody else. And then you're like, I just told you that. And it's like, 
it's it's the compounding of hearing something that finally that's right. it click in your spirit to change right. how you see things embrace it all so i'm just i'm happy that you know we, we got this constant drum beat on saturday that i get monday through friday to bring on yes. different people but it's it's the same conversation it's always that's the same right. conversation so that's right and it has and it has to be you know we were having this conversation with the young brothers yesterday as well it's you can't do it quickly so like you said i mean it's not going to click immediately and we've covered so much ground just in the last three years that even even going through all of that is still not going to click it, 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 it because learning is learning as we as we both know as teachers when you learn it's one thing for somebody else to say it and then for, for us to really get it it takes reinforcement it takes being surrounded you know these young people are up against this they're up against it they're up against constant distraction in fact today is the uh the final day of the association for the study of classical african civilizations our um, our conference ends today and 39th annual international and, and you know if y'all go to askhack.org you can all peek in this middle a big lot of lot of attendance and you know if you come in and you can you can see the conversations we're having there's some incredible conversations and um i think this afternoon i don't remember now maybe it's three or three thirty now i'm gonna give my talk about this question of learning and teaching and, and Afrofuturism in the context of this. And one of the things I want to talk about is something we talked about yesterday, which is speed. You know, everything's so fast now. And it becomes very difficult to process things because everything's constantly coming at us, constantly coming at us. So, you know, it's not it's not unusual to miss a lot. And so, you know, we have a repository in narrative. We have a repository uh, that people can access. And then we have, you know, in terms of this this particular element, it's all there as well in, in the archive and narrative. And we're live in Nubia. And then later, people get to see, um, you know, this conversation in, 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 in YouTube. People can access it. Interestingly enough, uh, on Thursday night at the banquet, that we had, uh, that they had. This is the program from it. It's called Scholarship Awards Gala, Let Us Make Man, The Gathering to Reclaim Black Manhood. It's their 14th annual celebration. It was at the Georgia International Convention Center. And I, I'm very happy um, to support these brothers and sisters. In fact, this is one of the founders, Brother Derek Bozeman, who's on uh, the air here in, in Atlanta. And this is my brother right here. I told him, you know, with Alton gone, he got to take the, but he's taking the baton. That's my man, Molly Davis, Mel Davis. Uh, when I first met him back in the early 90s, around 92, we were in Philly. He was still in the Navy at the time. Uh, brilliant lawyer and his crew. And you know, they Africans, man. These cats are some of the top lawyers, although I was laughing because every, every billboard, every sign, every wall got a lawyer's face on it in Atlanta. <laughs> what the hell these lawyers down? But this dude, this crew right here, they Africans. You can see he got the Adinkra symbol in his joint. Davis Bozeman Law. There they go. That's, that's, that's Mally right there. Chicago boy. Br br brilliant brother. But um, you know, at the at the gala, and they raised so much money. And they and they turn around and give the money to these young brothers. And when I'm talking, I ain't talking about five or 10 scholarships. I'm not talking about 20 or 30 scholarships. These are just some of the people 
In fact, these are some of the brothers who got the uh, Muhammad Rahim Jihad Memorial Scholarship. Muslim family, their, uh, their son tragically perished. These are just some of the guys. Now, I just want, want y'all to see some of these names. Some of y'all know these schools, right? And they were all there. In fact, um, uh, Brother Muhammad's um, parents were there as well. And to hear this woman and man talk about their child and how important it is for them to raise money for other young men. And it's not just young men. I'm, in a minute, I'm going to talk about this. This is something, if you're ever around on a Monday night, I think it's at 6.30, 7 o'clock, over at the um, Andrew and Walter Young Family uh, Youth Center, YMCA, uh, here in Atlanta. Uh, Andrew Young, of course, former mayor of Atlanta from New Orleans. His brother, Walter, Dr. Walter Young, is a dentist. So uh, there's, a, there's a Y name for them, a family Y. They have something called the Black Man Lab. This was established in 2017. So you get a couple of hundred brothers from all walks of life, all class, like the subway in New York, all different classes of people. And they come and they meet. Uh, the brother actually, uh, Brother Marty, Marty Monikin gave me uh, this shirt yesterday. I said, man, you know, I'm going, yeah, I got to talk about the Black Man Lab. I wish I could stay. We'll be in office hours and I got to get back to D.C., but uh, I'm going to come back down here soon because I want to actually experience the Black Man Lab. And in fact, <laughs> we'll go ahead. No, I just wanted, to, you know, I, I was toying with the, the uh, title today. What's the goal of, I mean, 2017 is not that long ago. No. What? What, what is well, the, well, the black man lab came out of the let us make man the goal and, and let me let say us, very quickly. Let us make man yes and that's see that's the thing oh yeah it's genesis you know that's when i gave the talk they wanted me i was supposed to come down here in 2019 but then uh no 2020 and then COVID hit so they went virtual so this is this, like fulfilling a promise that was three years ago to come down and and, and keep and give a give a talk at, at the event it's biblical, which means it's Egyptian. Of course, by the time you get to 26 verses of Genesis, you've laid out the Egyptian creation story. And so now who is us? Who are they talking to? It's us. It's us. God is talking to God's self. It's the community. And of course, they started with the Black Man Lab, coming out of Let Us Make Man. And the objective, I, I, I'll get to answer your question directly as they lay it out. The sisters were bringing their sons, their nephews, their grandsons, they are, and they in the parking lot waiting. So a few of the sisters say, you know what? Why are we in the parking lot? So they went in the building. So the Let Us Make Woman also meets <laughs> in, in the Y now. So and I, I just want to sit because I know um, you and Dr. Black on Mondays. Yes. Black was in Alabama. I missed him. Otherwise, we'd have blown up the whole city. But anyway, go ahead. You know, when, when he was talking about the physical touch um, yes, on Monday yes. and, and, you know, to, to turn on our humanity through that touch um, yes. that boys and men. And I remember when he talked about hand holding and people were getting freaking out, like black men holding hands. And it was like all throughout Africa, it happens like relax. No like, question. Relax, stop it. But no we have been so conditioned in this disease, defective society to, to shape manhood and womanhood based on the oppressor's vision of who we are instead of who we actually are. So is this a, a an attempt to re reclaim and remember the the origins of what it means to be a man? Yes, absolutely. That's okay. what it is. And it, and it's 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 an attempt, thank you. And it's an attempt, in fact, more than an attempt. It is the work of surrounding young people 
with an intergenerational circle where the question of their value is not a question at all. It's really quite something. Um, again, I just showed you a few of the names. Uh, they also give book scholarships. Um, here are the brothers and sisters who are the sponsors of the committee. Go, look, they go, your man's right there, Eldridge. <laughs> Eldridge Washington is on it, and there's Mally down there, of course. Um, this brother right here, Miguel Dominguez, good brother, his wife is a product. She's from Detroit. She's a product of the African Centered Schools. In fact, we were talking on uh, Thursday night and we got to talking and, and you know, it's crazy how these things all come together. She's a product of the Insaroma uh, family in Detroit, the African Centered School there, Aisha Shule, W.E.B. Du Bois Academy. Um, I was so happy because I saw them in back in 1995, if you can believe this, uh, we were there for the ASCAT conference at Cobo Hall, and they came. The the you know, Detroit is one of the foundational pillars of African-centered education in the United States. And Joy and them, they were teenagers. And so I started asking her, you know, Kosovo, right? yeah, that's my girl, and, oh, you know, Malika, Malika Pryor, who spoke, they were all like 16, 17, 18 years old. Malika, in fact, is now at the new International African-American Museum in Charleston. She's doing education. So I said, oh, well, how about I gotta reach out to her? I'm saying all this to say that the visionary in that space with Saroma and Aisha Shule and Du Bois Academy is a sister who's an ancestor now, Mama Imani Humphrey, um, you know, just a, a master teacher. So anyway, we, you know, these, these, this, so the people who are doing this work here, a lot of them are from the African-centered communities. Um, in fact, there was an award given to the, uh, the director of Quilombo. Quilombo is the, one of the African-centered schools here, the, uh, the Omoja family. In fact, brother, uh, uh, Dr. Akinyeli Omoja, who you've heard us talk about before, um, who wrote the book, We Will Shoot Back on Black Resistance in Mississippi. Uh, good brother, the public of New Africa. He's the one who was uh, co-editor of that special volume of Souls magazine that we showed a few weeks ago when I came back from Florida. I had seen him with uh, Dr. Matuli Shakur. But I'm looking here because um, this, this work, the objective is really Black self-determination. But it's not black self-determination in a limited sense. It is literally repair and restoration. Many of these young men, for example, nicely not 10, not 20, you know, scores, dozens of young men. You know, I lost count. So maybe, I don't know, maybe 75, 80 young brothers, one after one, coming to the microphone, telling everybody where they're going to school. My name is so-and-so. I'm going to Georgia State. I'm going to Howard. I'm going to Alabama a and I'm going to Alabama State. I'm going to Albany State. I'm going to Morehouse. I'm going, some of them got full rides. Some of them need that scholarship money, last dollar scholarship. All of them getting book scholarships invested. And then the families who are pouring into them, not blood relations, but family by choice. Um, it was, look, and there are a lot of people who are very critical of the Nation of Islam. I'm not one of those people. Because I know a lot of members of the Nation of Islam. Got a hell of a lot of respect for them. A lot of members of the Nation were there. One brother um, and his family, they put together uh, 10 tables. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 12 tables. Each table. The typical format, you know, 10 people to a table. I think the bottom, the bottom ticket was $100, and that went up into the thousands. 
They raising money hand over fist. What good is it to have money if you're not going to invest in the young people? So the objective is to put a floor under these young brothers and sisters who come from all different types of family, all different walks of life. You know, I was sitting there right behind me with a table of 10 and my people was there. I had just seen them because they brought all of the young people uh, to D.C. to tour Howard. These are all Howard alum. They're Howard University folk. So when I saw, you know, Karen Shropshire and the folk who, you know, I, I think I mentioned this is about maybe a month ago. They all came up. Cheryl Riley, you know, I mean, it was great to see them. And so they, they bought a table. So the objective is to model what intergenerational support looks like. And as I said, with the Black Man Lab, which I'm really sad I'm going to miss because they don't have a streaming dimension to it and they do it in person. And you're talking about brothers and sisters who come from all over the region and they are now in other places in Georgia. They want to take it all over the country and they want to replicate the format, which is basically come in here. We're going to lay some things out that are, you know, very um, basic. Um, every year they have the uh, they have a conference. They had a comp. They had their annual conference and gathering in person, back in person for the first time since COVID last weekend, over on the campus of the Atlanta University Center. And so when we start talking about some of the things they talk about, they had several tracks. Black Law and Society, for example, lies cast of lawyers. A lot of them are lawyers. In fact, let me just close the loop. Um, as I was mentioning, um, Miguel and George Dominguez, their son, Santana, is a junior at um, University of Pittsburgh. He's in the neuroscience. He wants to go to medical school. So we are actually to hook him up. Dr. Kelsey's there, and you know she's at Morehouse School of Medicine. He's doing an undergraduate thing with them this uh, this summer. So I mean, this is what it's about. You know, it's so funny, Miguel, at that point, when he when they were talking, he said, I've taken him as far as I can go in this. I'm a lawyer. I'm not a doctor. You know, we got doctors. Let's talk. And so they just move right into that. This is not about how much money you have. This is about being in community. Several of the families who received uh, awards and awards in the sense of recognizing them and supporting them. Uh, the family of uh, uh, several young brothers who I'm trying to see if I see. Ah, yes, here we go. Um, Bryce Brooks and Chuck Johnson, their families were there. These are two brothers, young brothers, uh, teenagers, who were on the water here locally and saw a, a, a brother who needed some assistance. Like he was going to drown. So what did they do? They didn't even hesitate. These brothers got in the water and were trying to save him and they lost their lives in the process. Young black men and their families were there, you know, receiving this award, the CT Vivian Award actually. And, you know, when you hearing their parents, their, you know, families, actually, no, one of the brothers was actually, he was, he was an adult, his, um, his wife spoke and one of his sons. It, you know, it was so powerful because this is the everyday courage of our people. But in lifting them and hearing them talk to these young brothers, you know, as I said, um, Muhammad Rahim Jihad, his parents, you know, he said, we are counting on you. Talking to the young men, said, we counting on y'all. 
for pouring into you all because without you, we don't exist. You are the next generation, but you're here right now. You're the generation right now with us, and we are pouring into you because we are counting on you. And to see these young brothers standing up like that, man. And then, of course, they they have they gave a Lifetime Achievement Award. Mike Ross, who is heavily involved here in, in, in the city of Atlanta and in the environment area. His sister is Sue Ross, those of you who are into black arts and photography, um, just, you know, a generational, um, a generational figure. Um, Sue Ross, she was there supporting her brother and uh, the great Abel Mabel Thomas. I'm like, man, Mabel, I didn't even realize it was her who was sitting at the table. And um, I, I'm saying all that to say that the objective, the objective is really to, um, when we say let us make man, and it, it's really to build young people who understand their responsibility, not as individuals, but their responsibility as individuals building community. And that's really what I what I tried to offer a few words um, in concert with everything else that was discussed on Thursday night. And, and I'll talk about that in a minute. I'm gonna hit a few of the things that I, I talked about. Um, it was very interesting because, you know, yesterday when we met with a smaller group of the young brothers, and sisters, and when we came in, uh, Maoli Mel was interviewing his mother and two of his aunts who grew up in Chicago about their life histories. Uh, Mel's uh, sons and his wife, you know, they, they came out, coming out of Howard University, you know, young brothers. And like, I remember when you had no children, wasn't married, dude. Now, you know, we, we, we move. As, uh, as the old gospel song says, you know, life is filled with swift transitions. And you look up and as the Egyptians would say, my heart of different ages. You're no longer that young person. You're no longer that teenager, that 20-something, that 30-something, that 40-something. You look up, you're 50-something years old. We were laughing about that yesterday. They were saying, you know, I'm middle-aged. And Sam's like, yeah, I'm not middle-aged. I'm past middle-aged. Sam said, no, I'm claiming 115 years. So I said, okay, well, then you're middle-aged. I'm 58, so I think I'm probably past uh, middle-aged. But at any rate, we're not those kids anymore, but we remember that. And, but we don't live in the same period they live in. And so their contributions to the conversation are their experiences, their, their, their natural talents. And our contribution is our experiences, our natural talents, and our And so when you put that together, you're not shutting people out. You're not telling young people, be quiet. Just listen to what I say. Do what I say. No. You're saying, let's talk through this because the lap you're taking is different than the lap that we're taking and so yesterday so funny we were sitting there and max and i you know max is newbie like i said you probably hear dan pull up the app i already pulled the app up but i let it go dark since see he may he may have already chimed in um but we were talking about because yesterday was cinco de mayo and y'all know we spent some time on cinco de mayo probably two years ago around this time talking about the, the battle of Puebla and how um, and then when we got to Juneteenth last year, we tied the Mexicans trying to get rid of those French despots and the Confederacy trying to reorganize themselves in Mexico in 1862 or 63 as the tide turns into war. And then we jump into war and it's a wrap for them. Um, Cinco de Mayo is a ritual day where you see the Mexican army defeat the French in a battle, uh, the Battle of Puebla, that they kind of uh, use as a symbol for their resistance. 
And we know, of course, the year after Juneteenth, June 19, 1865, June 19, 1866, they execute the puppet French uh, ruler that they tried to impose on the Mexicans. So there's a Juneteenth that has nothing to do with the United States in Mexico, June 19, 1866. But Cinco de Mayo, the 5th of May, that battle is a day that they um, memorialized in Mexico as a day that symbolized their resistance. And they would frequently pair the 5th of May with, um, with the Emancipation Proclamation. Because as we talked about, and I won't get into it today, again, we go to the archive, you can see the extensive conversation we had about how Mexico outlawed enslavement. Of course, in, in the United States of America, they want you to remember the Alamo, but for the wrong reasons. The Alamo is a social structure conversation. You shouldn't be cheering for David, I mean, for Jim Bowie and uh, David Crockett. You should probably be taking Santa Ana's side in that battle. But so yesterday was Cinco de Mayo, and we started the conversation actually with that because it allowed us to talk about how there is no national narrative in the United States of America. There's really no national narrative anywhere in the world. But if you're gonna have a country that has a national narrative, you're probably gonna be on a lot safer footing talking in China than you are talking in the United States because there's no one story. And once you put all the stuff out, stuff get real complicated. So um, very interesting though, um, you know, Sam, as I said, Livingston from South Carolina was talking about this international battle because we started talking about resistance. And so yesterday, Sam was talking about Stono, 1739, and what preceded it in 1738, as the Spanish are saying to these Africans, if you can get to Spanish territory, that border, if you can get to La Florida, you'll be free. Why? Because they're trying to recruit Black people into their armies. And some people are like, what? what? That's true? So yeah, what can I read about this? Well, I'll tell you one place you can get some sources to start with. Interestingly enough, is the incoming president of Howard University. I don't know the brother personally. I've never met him. I assume at some point I will. Uh, ben Vincent III. I do know, however, his work because he isn't uh, an academic, true academic. He's a scholar. Um, he has written extensively on the Black presence in the Spanish-speaking world a colonial Spanish-speaking world, particularly Mexico. He's written a couple of books. One of his books is on black soldiers in the Mexican army. So I'll tell you somebody who can tell you about those black folk who are escaping into Spanish Florida, and that would be Ben Vincent, uh, the, the incoming president of Howard University, July 1st. But in talking about that, it reminded us that these shells that we call countries are just that, they're shells, they're territories. And in the Western Hemisphere, they're settler colonies. And those of us who find ourselves in them are not here by choice. Those of us who were oppressed, the indigenous people, people of African descent, you know, particularly, we did not choose to be here. So when we try to identify with these places, we always have to pause and say, why? So when you ask, what is the purpose of something like Let Us Make Man? What is the purpose of the Black Man Lab connected to that? What's the purpose of the Black Woman Lab? What is the purpose of Let Us Make Woman? What is the purpose of that? The purpose isn't to create this outsized concept of manhood, womanhood. The concept is basically to build community. And out of that community, people identify their roles. This is what we expect of you. This is what we expect of you as people of African descent. And it's, it's, it's truly remarkable because we don't start with the trauma, but we don't look away from the trauma either. And that's what I'm gonna talk about today at the ASCAP conference when, when I get into that conversation. We're gonna talk about how 
when we start with the trauma, everything we do is a response to the trauma. Even our language, we talk about black joy. You know, we talk about black boy joy, black girl magic. I don't use those phrases because those phrases have at their center, unfortunately, too often, maybe not always, but too much for my taste, have trauma. The idea that black happiness is something that has to be, you know, kind of massaged and, and what? We're human beings. Why is the happiness seen as an outlying condition? Why? Because the trauma frames our lives. Does that mean we don't have trauma? No, it absolutely does mean that we have trauma, but we shouldn't be at the center. I'm going to talk more about that this afternoon. Maybe I'll talk, you know, maybe I'll talk about it a little bit more uh, this morning. But I want to talk about some things I talked about on Thursday at the, at the, the celebration. And again, I'm just looking at um, just a couple of more things out of this program I want you all to see. Look at this. They give out book scholarships. This is important for young people who don't have money for books, particularly in college. Look, these are in memory of and in tribute to book scholarships. These are the names of people who are ancestors whose families then raise money and create these book scholarships. And the book scholarships, I think, begin at $500 and go up. So when I tell you, it's not no little bit of money. And the beautiful thing about it is the people in this room, we're not talking about rich people. Some people are well-resourced. Most aren't. People pooling their resources. Walked into the convention center, walked into the Georgia International Convention Center on Thursday. You see all these young people in the lobby. The DJ was set up. My man, uh, my first time meeting him in person, I seen him all digitally on Black Power Media, uh, the ear doctor. In Atlanta, he came up to me. Hey, Daddy, are you? Oh, here, doctor, what's going on, brother? It's good to see you, man. They embrace that, brother. You know, I see him all the time in these internet streets. And but all these young people in the lobby waiting for the doors to open. The young people didn't pay. But part of the money that was raised, and I mean, these cats, man, this is what I love about. See, if you're going to be black, grappling in these corporate worlds, if you're going to be a black person who is moving, and of course, Atlanta is the case study in. Black schizophrenia, class schizophrenia. So that don't mean everybody's politically on the same page. And a minute, I'm going to talk about, you know, had to go sneak by the bookstores yesterday and I found something that I shouldn't be able to have been able to put my hands on. But, you know, that's all right. I got it now. So um, they said, I'll mention it in terms of class. This is uh, the great Alton Hornsby Jr. Uh, published this before he passed away. It's called Death and Remembrance in the African-American South, the Transition of Mayor Maynard J Holbrook Jackson Jr. Of course, that's who the airport is named for. He tells the story of the fight over the airport too. Um, of course, there's Maynard Jackson there. You see him. But the reason I said I shouldn't be able to get my hands on it is because this book is not one as easily you put your hands on when it's circulated. It was, it was published and printed in Kennesaw. But the reason I shouldn't have been able to get my hands on this one is because it's signed by all Normsby. Normsby been an ancestor. How much I paid for $23. Anyway, at the Morehouse Bookstore, the Morehouse College Bookstore. So you know I'm a clown. All the Morehouse students, all of my colleagues and friends, my man Sam Livingston probably already got a copy. Nate Norman, all them, you know, I'm a clown. I'm like, hey, how I walk in y'all bookstore and get a signed copy of Automatics book? And Automatics been an ancestor for over a decade. Anyway, but I raised that because Atlanta is known for black people who do quote unquote well professionally. Mayor Jackson is known as one of the uh, one of the beacons 
in attracting that type of person to Atlanta, which already had a long tradition. Of course, you yank on Maynard Jackson, and we talked about that in passing um, in, in, in one of our sessions. Uh, the, the genealogy of Maynard Jackson around the time the documentary came out on him. John Wesley Dobbs and, you know, the black folk going back to the late 19th century, which would include, of course, the grandfather, the great grandfather, and ultimately the father of Martin Luther King. But everybody in his family, uh, other than his father's, uh, his father came through his mother's side in terms of those ministers at Ebenezer and those folks involved in the George Equal Rights League with him and Neil Turner, all that stuff. Alberta Williams is, 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 is Martin Luther King's mother's side. But anyway, so there's a, there's a foundation that Maynard Jackson appears out of, but even as he's pushing this thing, you get all these quote unquote successful black people here. You've got the black poor. And those of you who remember, if you remember the Atlanta child murders documentary that came on HBO recently, and I mentioned Tony K. Bombara, whose last novel published posthumously, These Bones Are Not My Child, talks about that. There's real class tensions there. Critiques, warranted critiques of Maynard Jackson not doing enough for the poor black folk, you know, trying to break labor strikes and, you know, not really putting the resources where they need to be as the community was being assaulted in the late 70s, early 80s in terms of this wave of black children coming up missing, these poor black children. So the class tensions, all of that is here, but in, a, in an event like we saw and we're in on Thursday and then the conversation we had yesterday and then of course the black man lab and the black woman lab that takes place at the young YMCA, every class is represented. And the general narrative would be, well, that's good because poor black people should come and see successful black people and so they can become like them. Mm, nah. Because I guess technically a lot of us in here will be considered successful black people, but success is not measured by material gain alone and not, and not centrally as far as I'm concerned. It's measured by what you contribute to the community. How do it free us is the question. Now, how do it free you? It's not a free Negroes walking around here. At least they think they are. And there are some Negroes who are doing quite well. And there's some more they're going to do well. At least rhetorically, that is the excuse. I'm sorry. The explanation that Reverend Jakes is giving for while he's in bed with uh, Wells Fargo. Those predators. Um, to do mixed income development in the property adjacent to Tyler Perry Studios here. And, you know, that's the excuse. So you, you put mixed income people together and you have a community where people can see success and they can be, you know, more successful. Okay, man. And as I said on Thursday night, last I checked, Jesus Christ never had to pay a mortgage because he never owned a house. Reverend Jakes. And so, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lot. Good speech. I'm a lot less inclined to listen to T.D. Jakes talk about Jesus or anything that involves, um, you know, a gospel of prosperity on one side. And of course, he's very careful to tell Gail King and anybody else that would listen as he's making excuses that the businesses of T.D. Jakes are firewalls separated from his preaching. And last I checked, Jesus did not have an interlocking board of directors. He had just disciples. But at any rate, and that's not to say we need money. I guess what I guess what I'm coming to is this very important point. It's very complicated. We live in a capitalist society. We were having that conversation yesterday. That means somebody got to pay the light bill. Somebody got to have a place. 
you know, we're an ASCAP, we're raising money because we, we want to build and I'm, so I'm going to put, you know, all these resources we have to continue this work. You got to have money for that. And you got to be smart in a world where capital doesn't care. You know, today's Financial Times, I had to read it digitally. You know, I like the paper in my hand. I can't show it to you, but if you go and look, and I'll talk about one of the things I um, said to young people on Thursday night, as, in fact, I'll say it now. One of the things I suggested everyone do is get a library card. So that's something I'll bring in here. Let me just do 30 seconds on that. If you have a public library card, that's going to give you access to some of the papers that are firewall, as we know. In other words, you don't have to subscribe to the Washington Post or the New York Times. If you've got a public library card and your public library system subscribes to those papers, you can read those papers for free without leaving wherever you live. You don't have to go in because if you go to the places, they usually have the subscriptions if you're in a bigger city. But, you know, the Financial Times has a long article today on Jamie Dimon, who picked up another cheap bargain on Monday. Prof. Mm. Isn't that crazy, y'all? I mean, and they're talking about the fact that y'all think this is no, this was a setup. They was always gonna give it to him. Yeah, and then he listed all the banks they done bought over the last week. Oh. What do you think about that, Brian? <laughs> yeah, I sit quite often because I'm I'm at uh at the crossroad of a lot of these things personally, yes. right? So I'm yes. in the seat of capitalism. Uh, I, you know, I employ a lot of people, I manage yes. a lot of folk and, you know, in the midst of that, you know, it's, it's, there's a responsibility, you know, to, yes. to serve, right. Cause that's what we're really here to do. But also, you know, I, there's a, there's a part of me that wishes that, you know, if the billion dollars were put in the right hands, and I guess that's the argument we always hope for, right. That, cause I don't know if TD Jakes is nefarious and I don't know if, I don't think he is. I don't know if the money will corrupt or maybe maybe it will save some people. Maybe because we as we talk about the unhoused and and the crisis in, in San Francisco and New York and other places in D.C. throughout this country, uh, the DMV area where they're bus, you know, they're bringing in migrants. I mean, there's a lot of things happening at the same time that money would probably help. Yes. In the right hands with the yes. right vision. Right. Yes. Unfortunately, we haven't been conditioned to serve with money. We've been conditioned to gain more power and just be greedy with it. Right. So I think about the billions of dollars that Mackenzie Scott just poured in, just get, just, and she can't get rid of enough money because more money just keeps coming in. And I think about, you know, I know maybe her heart is like, I'm giving all this money away to the, you know, a lot of HBCUs, but then if the money goes into bad hands and those HBCU presidents use it to, you know, bolster their own, um, light and and create places for them you know if that money goes to you know i just think about um i, I don't want, i'm gonna say less because it's you know there's a, <laughs> right right there's, there's it, right. situations that i know and it's like so i and i don't know you know i don't know if if a pastor like can can serve two masters <laughs> mm. i don't know i don't know you know, mm. um, at the same time in my in my circle, Buster Stories built out a whole community in Somerset, New Jersey. Right, and he was Secretary of State of New Jersey as a pastor. And I know for a fact because I've been there and I've seen the work that those dollars went to. They have completely created generational wealth and relieved people of of the trauma of poverty. So I've seen it work, but I I don't know. I struggle with that. And and talking about it, can can we? I guess browbeat people into, you know, verbally browbeat them into doing the right thing because we're watching. Like maybe, maybe that happens. I, I just think about, 
some things that have happened because of things I've said on the radio and people don't talk to me, but they did the right thing. So I don't care if you don't ever talk <laughs> to me again. It, be big mad, but go do what you need to do because I'm going to talk about you, right? Yes. That's my role in life, to, to yes. be irritant and to make people mad so that yes. they go and then do, you know, in spite of, you know, like I'm not yes. going to talk to her. Okay, but you're doing what I told you to do. Which yes. you're to do. So I'm I'm good. Don't you ain't got to talk to me. I don't need more yes. friends. I'm good. I'm a grown yes. But you know, so I, so I struggle with that. Do we do we chastise TD Jakes or do we do we hold him accountable by watching what he does? You know, it's like I feel that way, you know, like Byron Allen went and, and got everybody riled up over civil rights and then it benefited him and he started the thing. And but Michael Harriet has a job there, and I'm happy that Michael Harriet is working, you know, and I'm happy that he's able to do things like this where he's founding yes. fathers, human traffickers and drug smugglers and, and cannibals and stuff. And I'm like, you know, this man gets to be free, maybe, you know, so so I can I can level and, and Byron Allen probably never talked to me again and he threatened me, you know, trying to get my job taken and all this other stuff because I was on the air. But you know, no, I'm gonna say that. But at the same time, you know, if if he's now giving uh, opportunities for people, good. You know, two things can be true in this moment. Two things can be true. Multiple things. Yes, but at the same time, there's bigger capitalism. That's this is mini capitalism that we're talking about. Billion dollars is nothing in the hands of you talking about Jamie Dimon. I'm like, man, he's testifying. I'm saying, like, you would just say big bank, little bank, little bank, you know, like ice cube say, let's now let's play big bank, take little bank. The biggest bank, JP Morgan Chase, you just snatched up first republic. Like, it's all good. Yeah. So, but it does raise a question. I had a guy on uh, this week talking about what is what is money, you know. Um, that's good. And, that's good. And, and that's a question I don't think we ask, you know, what is, what is the role of money? What is money? You know, he was even talking about taxes. Taxes, we are not taxed to pay things. They pay things and then they tax us. It's that's the opposite, right? So if you think about the reverse of that, then, so I'm being taxed to pay something you already bought. Wait, right. Wait, wait a minute. Uh, and, and then during COVID, you printed like $2 trillion. You just printed it and gave it away. No question. Like nobody, there's no... You should have seen these kids. We were talking in office hours on Monday night after I came back from uh, Dunbar High School Monday for their decision day. And I'm in the room with these juniors talking about college, what they want to do. And I said, how many of y'all uh, expect Social Security when you get older? They put their hands up. I said, you know, Social Security that you paying now at your little job is not there for you. You paying my Social Security. And they was like, what you mean? By the time, like you said, no, your money, you don't have no money. You paying for me. So now, <laughs> if, like you said, they already bought the stuff. <laughs> Taxes is putting the money back. <laughs> but most of us don't under, understand how this thing works. So that's we, right. So we don't know our role in it and what our responsibility is to it and how we can manifest power through it. Um, I was talking with this woman, Ida Henry's, who's going to be an in integral part of something that I'm creating and on my show because she builds, she's from Liberia and she helped build a $220 million portfolio for a, one of her clients, real estate developing. Mm. And talking about how during the pandemic, there was the largest transfer of wealth in the history of this country with the $2 trillion. And it was all of these programs that many of us didn't, you know, some of y'all got that PPP or PPE or whatever. And, 
Some of y'all, some of y'all went to jail <laughs> or got some of y'all went to Congress. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Mark Matt. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> so some people knew what to do, and what then a do? lot of people didn't. And there was just money sitting in these coffers that were just That's accessed right. by the people who made the laws. So they, which is why so many Congress people took advantage because they can insider trade and they they make the laws, which is why everybody wants to go to Congress because that's where you get rich. That's where you get, it's, it's a big game, and we all these people thinking that they're going there for us. So so again, the accountability, like we need to start asking some better questions and then making people pay when they go and serve themselves and not us. Absolutely. Like, shouldn't keep getting elected. Absolutely. Well, I think you just defined it. You really did. I mean, again, I know Mali for, like I said, 30 years. I mean, when I see him and I see these women and men around him, they are in those places. And one of the things that we talked about on Thursday and we talked about again yesterday, and I'm going to talk about today at the ASCAT conference, we have to decenter the things that we are told in this society should be at the center and put the things on the periphery that are on the center. What do I mean by that? You know, I, like I said, I was at Dunbar High in, 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 uh, in D.C. on Monday at their decision day. All their seniors saying where they're going to go after high school. Some of the seniors are going into the fire department. Everybody, I'm, I'm in the gym with all these students and the teachers and the administrators, and they're coming up one by one to the podium, these young people. I'm going to work with D.C. I'm going into D.C. Fire Cadet Program. Everybody cheering. Next person. I'm going to John C. Smith University. Everybody cheering. Then somebody says, uh, I'm going to now go to cosmetology school. Somebody cheering. I mean, it, all these young people cheered for everybody equally. And we understand that that is really our objective. Now, the question becomes, what is at the center of that work? As you say, what is our objective? Well, our objective is to build our community, to build the we. On the periphery should be those things that we are taught in this society to put at the center, because at the center of this capitalist society, of really the whole concept of Western civilization, which is responsible for creating these racial divisions and tensions, the things that we think of now in terms of whiteness and, and, its, and its victims, is the individual. In other words, when you achieve as an individual, it's like the community achieving. No, it's not. Because you just raised it, Prof. If you go out and achieve this material success and aren't pouring that back into the community, or better yet, pouring it into the community because you never left the community in one form or the other, then your success is meaningless to us. In fact, it can be used as a weapon against us because then the people turn around and say, see, you see so-and-so, what about you? And you know, no, can a, can a Christian can a, a Christian minister be a millionaire? Well, the answer to that, of course, is yes, because there are Christian men, Christian billionaires, Muslim billionaires, every faith tradition you have. In fact, you've got those who are well-resourced. But the question becomes, how does that benefit all of us? Are you really being of service? And so, of course, as you say, many things can be true at the same time. You can be of incredible service. You know, you can be of, of incredible service, but we have to understand that the, the universities, the banks, all of those institutions should be on the periphery of our community. At the center of our community must be the community. So if you get a young woman, and I met several um, you know, Thursday and then yesterday having conversations with one young sister. Um, you know, in fact, her mom and I 
go way back. Uh, Olisa Yatolokun, this is her latest book. Uh, Olisa brought uh, Dr. Uh, Tolokun, who is a clinician, counselor, psych psychology teacher. She teaches in the Atlanta University Center, based primarily at Clark, Atlanta, but all students in the AUC, so Morehouse Spelman, Morris Brown. You can take classes with, uh, with Dr. Tolokun, her daughter. I'm very happy to, to know now that Madupe is going to be a freshman at Howard in the fall. So, of course, we got to look out for her. There's a steady pipeline in those African-centered schools. As I say, keep on board all of them. I think we, we have a steady, uh, steady pipeline from the African-centered schools. And it's not just at Howard, but I'm always happy. When I showed up at Howard, one of the first students I saw in the bookstore had a job in the bookstores like a sophomore in college um, was a product of the Aisha Shule. Uh, a Kosovo. That's what we're laughing about. That said, a child. I still had the bracelet that she gave me when I, we all came to Detroit, and they gave us stuff. And I said, I got your bracelet, and she just laughed. She said, I got you, Dr. Carr. We're gonna look out for you, Howard. And so those, those young people broke me and those African kids. But anyway, uh, what, I'm, what I'm about to say is, in that context, the community. If you want to be a psychologist, if you want to be a medical doctor, if you want to be a lawyer, if you want to be a record producer, or sitting one of the brothers in the conversation, has worked many decades in the music industry. Ironically, his name is Rick Ross. No, not that Rick Ross, but another Rick Ross. I mean, a very, very powerful brother having a conversation with him yesterday in this intergenerational dialogue. If you want to do anything, we got people in our community who do everything. You want to be an investment banker? You want to learn how to start your business cutting grass? You, you Whatever you want to do. You want to be in the building trades? We got somebody who does that. But those, those occupations should be on the periphery at the center is community. So as you're learning these practices, you want a good lawyer, we got some lawyers who are not going to take your whole shirt off and run bankrupt and who know what they're doing. In fact, we were talking about that because... Uh, Mally knew Alton Maddox, you know, his service was at Abyssinian on Monday, sat there and watched the service. It was very moving. Glad to see the benediction was given by Leonard Jeffries. Glad to see Dr. Jeffries up and Halen Hardy and, you know, recovering. He had some health challenges recently. Uh, Vernon Mason, of course, who was Alton Maddox's partner at the time, um, he presided at, there at Abyssinian. But his final internment, just like John Henry Clark, you know, Dr. Clark had a funeral at Abyssinian, and then they sent his body back to Gethsemane Baptist Church in, in, in Georgia. My mom and I went to, to the funeral. Well, all Maddox was funeralized, as black folks say, um, uh, funeralized on Thursday in Newman, Newman, Georgia. And it was something, man, to see that old school. And my mom told me, I said, you know, because I went to the one in Abyssinian, and my mom and I went, they drove from Nashville, came out of Columbus, Georgia. How was it, Ma? She said, yeah, you know how black, you know how we do in the South, little church. People sing them long meter hymns, say a few words, and then ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Well, I watched all Maddox. It was an hour long. Film. The one in New York was three hours. I mean, everybody, Charles Barron and them was, I mean, Inez Barron, everybody, all the officials came, James Small, everybody talking about all Maddox. His longtime secretary giving insight how, you know, Maddox moved through the world. Um, National Council of Black Lawyers, he started their juvenile program. Um, you know, but then when you heard the funeral on Thursday, and y'all go look it up. Somebody will put it in the chat. I'm sure some Nubians have already put it in the chat and, uh, you can see it. If you're watching this later on YouTube, you'll be able to see, uh, somebody will drop it in the chat. Um, they said, okay, we're going to keep this to two minutes, y'all. And people did not walk up to the pulpit in this little church. They're giving a testimony from the pews.
<laughs> I'm gonna tell you now. I remember all. Oh man, it was just a beautiful thing. But you know, automatics and even like I said, Mally and I were talking about this yesterday. Maddox was brilliant. It wasn't just that he was a man for the people and a man of the people. It wasn't just that he met uh, Mama Leona, his his wife, uh, who preceded him and into ancestorhood, and on a blind date. And after like three months, they were married. But he he had finished law school. And he had told her uh, he went to Howard undergrad, and he he had told her, "Look, I'm never gonna be rich. I'm going to use this degree to fight for the people. So if you're okay with that." you know, we can make a go of this. And she said, yeah. And of course, Leona Maddox, legendary, how she ran the household and, 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 and was really his backbone. In many ways, they were a true partnership. And Maddox wasn't just that they worked for the people. It wasn't just that they started the United African Movement and took young people to peg leg baits and all the stuff we talked about last week and much, much more. I would encourage you all to watch that three-hour service at Abyssinian Baptist Church and then watch the one that took place uh, this past Thursday in Newman, Georgia. Um, but <laughs> the, fun the funeral home, you can't make this up. The funeral home in Newman, Georgia was not too far from here, actually, less than an hour from here. Roscoe Jenkins funeral home. That's a true story. <laughs> anyway, watch the hour uh, there. And what you'll see is that, as we were talking yesterday, it wasn't just that he was a man of the people. It wasn't just that his wife was a woman of the people. Automatics as a lawyer was not just good. He was very good. Automatics won cases. Automatics won. Automatics was a warrior. Very important distinction to be made as my man uh, um, Baruti makes, Malingu Baruti, who's here in, uh, in Atlanta, he and his wife, when he makes the distinction between a warrior and a soldier. You know, a soldier is in somebody's army. They follow an order. A warrior is defending the community. They don't like to fight, but if they have to fight, they will. And when they fight, they fight to win. Why? Because I'm not fighting on somebody's orders. I'm fighting as part of the community who is designated with protecting the community. And that's what all Maddox was. And I'm raising it in this context, Prof, of what you've raised in terms of the layering and the complicated fact that many things can be true when we live in a capitalist society. If we are getting the resources in order to build for our community, then yeah, I would you know, as I said last week, the only you know three elders in our community, all ancestors now, who I was able to tell if I was going to practice law, it would be like y'all, all Maddox, Chokwe Lumumba, and Abel Muhammad. In my age group, age mates, and I said this to him yesterday, I said, man, Alton is an ancestor now. It's your shift, Molly. Mel, Mel's one of those guys. Molly Davis is one of those guys. That will he, he, you get him, he's going to fight for you. He's going to make sure that if it can be won in those courts, he's going to be the person. If the document has to be right, he's going to be the person. And he's not alone. This is what makes this so powerful. Now, these are guys, these are women and men who have some resources, but they are getting those resources in order to fortify the community. Let us make the community. So that is a true thing. I think T.D. Jakes certainly thinks he's doing that and he will definitely improve the material uh, conditions of some people. And that's a beautiful thing. Wells Fargo is a criminal enterprise. And if he thinks he can somehow negotiate that, God bless him. But that should not dissuade those of us who have taken the automatics approach. In other words, some of us have to take the approach that 
we will not be dissuaded because teaching is here you used to always say this you know teaching isn't just about transferring knowledge through what you say and what you write and what you and what you show other people to do teaching is how you move through the world and i'm gonna tell you prof uh I'll tell you professor hunter i i <laughs> whew, Karen, thursday night this elder came up uh let's say up over we were sitting in this big room and this elder came she was with her daughter she had her mask on and she said i gotta pull this mask down and mom and mom said take it uh, her daughter said take it off we're going to we take a picture this uh this sister who was an elder lost her brother last february he became an ancestor i say lost he made transition so i was going to be with her he made transition at 80. she came up and said i had to come up here and tell you this face to face my brother who lived in Las Vegas, they're from Chicago. He retired, he's out in Vegas. And my brother never missed y'all on Saturday. My brother, it didn't matter what else was going on. He watched y'all, he made us watch y'all. And he said, oh yeah, we started telling people, he never missed y'all. It gave him so much joy. I'm gonna tell you right now, you can't put a dollar amount on that. I'm watching people all over the country try to figure out how to do what we're doing. And I ain't gonna name no names. Y'all know who y'all are. Some of y'all are here right now. Some of y'all are being here a little bit later. And that's fine. You should come. Because the secret to what we're doing is quite simple. You said it, Prof. Start with an S. Service. Service. So please, by all means, serve serve we're not out there trying to direct people to something that should be on the periphery we had that conversation too yesterday because again i'm standing there with olisa i'm standing there with her daughter madupe we're having this conversation about the high price of college i said this thursday night college is too expensive you know we saw the news this week from north carolina Fayetteville state HBCU, proud HBCU, dropped its tuition to $500 a semester. You can go to Fayetteville State, in-state. What? $500 a semester, prof. You hear me? How were they able to do that? Well, part of it is, is subsidy from the state of North Carolina and fiscal planning. So they got, they got a, you know, their enrollment was up. So they, there was, there was a, a plan Come on now, teach. Come on. So, so it it can happen everywhere. Hell yes, it can. Can it? Can it, bro? I mean, what's, what's the point, right? What's the point of of higher ed? What's the point of higher ed? Right? What what is it that we really want from higher ed? And what is it that I mean? This is how you build community when you're really strategic about it, right? So you you create an environment for your young people in your community to be able to go get the skills that are necessary to build your community. And, and you make it affordable so that they can go come out and not be saddled with debt and have to go run off to different places to get money, but they can come back and serve exactly. the community. And it's a cycle and then it builds on each other. That is exactly. amazing. Isn't that something? Isn't that something? And, and, and you do it from a place where by the time they get old enough to go to college, they're very specific about what skills and what experiences they want to acquire there because we have built places like this the black man lab, the black woman lab has been built so that by the time you get to there, you might not. This is something that Rick was saying yesterday. He said, I didn't go to college. 
I knew I wanted to do music since I was four years old. And I didn't need to go there for the skills that I had acquired along the way. And I'm very, he's very successful. He's worked with all kinds of people, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I mean, you name it, Nita Baker, he's done all that work. And but then there are people who need those skills. Okay, then you need to go there. Maybe you don't need to go to a four year. You can go to community college. Maybe you don't need that. Maybe you go to an apprenticeship program. But the fact is, when we center community, we've already given you some of the skills in the places that don't charge tuition. The places that are subsidized by the people who can write the check and that are subsidized by the time of the people who can't write the check, but who have the experiences and who are just coming to be in community. Again, putting higher ed on the periphery. And so, Fayetteville State, imagine that. Tuition, $1,000 a year. $4,000 tuition if you in state, you got a degree from Fayetteville State. Meanwhile, you know, the world, the university I work at just went up 7.5%. The email came out. Already like mid fifty thousand. With that, all that money Mackenzie Scott gave. Well, see, this is where you got to ask yourself: What's the objective? The objective is to train black doctors and lawyers and black people MBAs. All oh, that's very important. All oh, that's incredibly necessary. Now, the question is: Can you do it more cheaply? The answer is yes. If we increase alumni giving and and the faculty write more grants, okay. And the, the public HBCUs, almost all of which are behind the cotton curtain down here, they are a lot cheaper. Now, so, so if you can't, with a private HBCU or a hybrid kind of private public HBCU, federal subsidy like Howard, if you're Howard, if you're well, Spelman, if you're Morehouse, and I, like I said, I was on the AUC campus yesterday. I went around and, you know, looking around, I was on Georgia State's campus. In fact, uh, another, I'll mention this very quickly, another uh, person who's in here with us, Nubian, I'm in there, you know me, I'm a drug addict, so I got my coffee. And uh, <laughs> and I'm working on my ASCAP presentation for later on today. I heard Dr. Carr. Hey, brother, he said, you can't be in public and think anybody going to recognize you. I watch you with Professor Hunter. We talk, okay, okay. What's your name? My name is Mason. Uh, Mason Aruru. Oh, okay. He's getting his coffee. We talking. He's Nigerian. So we talking. And actually, uh, I and Nelly appreciate this. He's from her neck of the woods he speaks Yoruba. he was as he's born and raised in lagos but his people are closer to port harcourt where of course the emma johnson library is that you were all supporting and so we talking and he says i wrote this book on afrobeat because we are he's asking me and we just kind of what you do i'm over at georgia state oh, okay you're a professor no actually i work there but i'm going back to school like, okay okay afrobeat I said, let me look. So I looked up on the computer. I said, I'm going to get this book. He said, no, no. You know, I put a copy in my bag today. I don't know why. I said, because I was here and you knew you was going to see me. Now, <laughs> so I need to buy this book from you. So he got his uh, coffee and we walked across the street, Georgia State, got up on the ninth floor, the Department of Afro-American Studies, Africana Studies at Georgia State. He's the administrator for the Department of Africana Studies. I said, I was just with Baba AK last night. I can yell it. He said, yeah. School is out. He was up there by himself. And he and he sold me. I wouldn't let him give it to me. Because again, community. Afrobeat got sold. This is him. He signed it. Very nice. You know what I'm saying? So this is interesting because he grew up in Lego. So you know the first question I asked him, I said, brother, did you ever go to the shrine? He said, the shrine? Oh, let me tell you about the shrine. Of course I went to the shrine. I said, you ever meet fella? He said, yes, let me tell you my fella story. I said, it's in the book. He said, a version of it's in the book. But as this version, I can't put it in the book. And when he told me, I can't repeat it. But anyway, yes, the point is he met Fella. If y'all know Fella, you can probably imagine 
his encounter with Fella at the shrine when he was a teenage boy hanging out in Lagos with Fella. But my point is that all of that community, Georgia State, and I was very happy because this, I don't, the ancestors don't make any mistakes. This was absolutely supposed to happen. And because school is out, there's nobody around. Me and him got to, to sit there for a minute. And there's a big, there's a big portrait of Asa Hilliard in their department that they put up. He said, I didn't know Asa. I said, I knew Asa very well. That was my man. I said, to see him here, which, you know, it's just a beautiful thing. But, but I got to ask him about Georgia State. It's like we were talking, I was talking about AK and his grandbabies on uh, Thursday evening at the, at the uh, banquet, the gala. Georgia State graduates more black students a year than any HBCU in the country. Georgia State is affordable. Georgia State has also seen some decline in enrollment and some budget cuts. But Georgia State should be on the periphery with Howard. Georgia State should be on the periphery with Spelman and Morehouse. Georgia State should be on the periphery with Fayetteville State, North Carolina, A&T. And the dozens of schools that I heard these young brothers on Thursday night say they're going to school. And the dozens of schools that I heard those young people at Dunbar High School say where they're going to school. I can't even begin to tell you, but all of that should be on the periphery. One of my former students who uh, went to Howard undergrad, went to Kemet with us, who uh, then came down here, went to Morehouse School of Medicine. I'm sorry, went to Meharry, and then went to Morehouse School of Medicine. Is now in Cincinnati, completing uh, her work at a hospital there in Cincinnati. Dr. Ridge, Margaret Ridge, Maggie Ridge, she was in town for a meeting. She's pediatrician, pediatrician by training. She was in D.C. for a meeting last week. And of course, I was in Philly, but she was there Monday for part of the day. I said, Maggie, if you're in town, come, come over to Dunbar and meet me, because I had a plan. You come to Dunbar to see me because I want to see you before you get on the plane. But if you come in the building at Dunbar High School, I'm going to get you to talk to these, these juniors and seniors because I want them to see what a doctor looked like, looked like them who went to school in this in this city. And so she came. We're sitting there. One of the brothers who is on faculty at Dunbar High School teacher, um, he, um, oh, his name will come to me in a minute. Jalo. Uh, Mr. Diallo, he was talking. We were in the teacher's lounge before we went and talked to the high school student. And I'm excited now because they get to meet, you know, Maggie Ridge, this young sister who's, you know, dynamite doctor and who came through all black institutions. I mean, come on now. She's from Boston. It's a beautiful thing. So we're sitting there talking. The brother comes in. He's making copies. We talking, you know, and we knew each other. Because I know some of the people, you know, that's where Nubia is, Nubia Green with the Carter G. Wilson Academy, and my people. And so, but he didn't know Maggie. So I introduced him. He said, oh, What do you do? He said, I'm a pediatrician. He said, My father was a pediatrician. Really? I didn't know that, man. Yeah, my father was a pediatrician. My father was very good friends with and helped fund with his work as a doctor the work of his very good friend and co founder of their political party in Senegal. He's from Senegal, he's from Dakar. My father was very close friends with Sheikh Anta Joe. I said, what? Man, you never told me that. He said, I never, it all, it was all because Maggie came by to say hello to me and to talk to some of these young people in Dunbar High School on her way to the airport. And I found out not only that, service, Professor Hunter, service. Mm -hmm. He said, my father, he's an ancestor now. Shake out the joke, one of the greatest minds produced by humanity in the last century. Shake out the joke, the man who unlocked 
the potential of studying classical Africa, the chemist, the physicist, the Egyptologist, the, the, the elder protege of Theophilo Benga, the teacher of Mario Beatty. This man, his work was partially funded by Dr. Diallo, the father of the brother who's teaching at Dunbar High School service. But he said, as a boy, I remember in Dakar, the people knocking on our doors all time of day and night, bringing their children because they didn't trust the hospital. Will you see my child, Professor Diallo? He said, my father never turned anyone away. Most of those people couldn't pay. Service, most of those people couldn't pay. Now, 30 minutes later, we sitting in the room, Maggie talking to these high school students, Prof, what do you think the first question they asked her was? Tell us. How much do y'all make? The whole plot. Ah. Of course, but that's okay. Ah. But no, but their children, it's, suppo it's supposed to be the question. What did you say, Prof? We are surrounded in a capitalist society where our value is measured in dollars. But as she talked, this is what she told them. And I know she won't be mad at this because she told them and they couldn't believe it. She said, you know how much debt I incurred on the way to a salary? She says, I owe $470,000 in student loans. Jesus. <laughs> the, the words they used were a little stronger, but the sentiment was exactly the same. <laughs> but she said, because of the work I do, however, because of the work I do, I pay based on my ability to pay. This is what happens to public service, right? This is what you learn in a black man lab. This is what you learn in the black woman lab. This is what you learn as a child. We say, I'm gonna make a hold on. If you go into service, this is policy making. So policymakers who got some we in you that got this through the federal government, she says, for 10 years, I will pay what I can pay based on my salary, which isn't nearly as large as the salary of some of my classmates who decided to go in these other fields of practice. And at the end of 10 years, the rest of my loans will be forgiven. Service. That's public. So there's tracks for that. It's, I'll let y'all know many of you are probably in those kind of programs. But going back 30 minutes before we walked in that room with these young people, and, and, and look, I didn't know where she was going with this, but I known this child for a I said, child, she's a grown woman. I known this young woman for a long time. She wrote her name on the board, wrote her email, wrote her cell phone number. You don't get these kids like Don't matter. Doesn't matter. Service. 30 minutes before, Professor Jallo said, Mr. Jallo, his father, Dr. Diallo, he said, as a child, I remember them bringing him. And he never turned him away. Sometimes they pay in, in, in fruit. Sometimes they pay in doing some work. Sometimes they didn't have anything to do. He said, I'll never forget the night a child died in my house. Because he couldn't, he did everything he could for this child. He couldn't save the child. He said, my father and Sheikh Joe and their friends, they said Africa has everything it needs. We need nothing from the French. And he said, but Senghor had different ideas. I said, did he, did he put him in jail? I know she got the show. He said, no, nah, but they persecuted him because he said, we don't need to look to the French. We don't need to look to anybody. And you had too many in, in Congo, they call them under the Portuguese, these people who want to be more Portuguese than the Portuguese, more French than the French. And, you know, many things can be true at the same time. You got people who love their country, but they also got this European in their mind, what Mary Brock called that white ghost. My daddy was one of them people who said, we don't need nothing from these people. And he, and he spent his life in service. And I'm looking at this man who's on this high school faculty, his wife, his daughter is here, and he is following in footsteps, not because his father taught him that mouth to ear or writing. He looked at the practice of his father's life. 
And these young people are typical DC young people. But guess what? If you surround them, then they will not only have pathways to go, but they're going to go to that periphery and bring it back to their community. You said it, it's service. That's what it comes down to. So um, just a couple more things. Um, you know, that let us make man. I like it. I like it because, of course, you know, we we now here in Bible territory, right? And, um, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to go over to the AUC is because, you know, the Interdenominational Theological Center is in trouble. They need resources. And I'm like, how, how do you get ITC in trouble? How do you, how does ITC not have money when ITC is the Morehouse School of Religion? ITC is the AME Church. ITC is the CME Church. Kojic, Pentecostal, this is a seminary for them. So how do you, why? Because now we got preachers who, you know, you know, get up and talk. And I guess you, anybody can be a bishop. I'm not sure which uh, uh, seminary Bishop Jakes went to. I don't remember. I'll look it up. But my point is, you ain't got to go nowhere to be a bishop now. He's like, you're a bishop. Well, you're a bishop. All right, well, let's all be bishop. I'm going to make you a bishop. You're going to make me a bishop. Okay, no problem. So, <laughs> but the idea of institutions doesn't have the cachet that it used to have. And so what I said was that when we talk about making community and we talk about empowering ourselves, Genesis will say, you know, let us make man and give him dominion. Okay, well, we're going to take the gendered language out in a moment. But even that question of dominion becomes very interesting. I mean, where does dominion play a role in our community now? Humans have dominion and we see where it's getting us. The ball getting ready to throw the species off the ball. But the solution, the solution for us is what we're doing. It really does mean to be, to be African, not to be African in any going back in time and reversing, can't reverse anything, but you must have the momentum of memory. And what the momentum of memory means is not restoring things as they were, as much as taking the measure of things as they were and using that as the foundation for building the things that we need today and answering those questions. And so that's what we really spent yesterday on. Um, I mentioned Thursday night that when we go to Kennett and we'll have our regular bi-weekly meeting, I think they resume tomorrow when we finish our conference um, for the people who are going to Kennett this August and our kind of uh, pioneering resuming first time since 2019. But we go to a place called Set Ma'at, the place of Ma'at. Uh, the Arabs call it Dira Medina. It's the workers village. And I mentioned this on Thursday night. This is the place where the Africans who uh, cut the tombs, who wrote on the walls, all the stuff we see written on the walls in Kemet, these are the workers who would do that in this particular area, which is around the other side of the Valley of the Kings and Queens, New Kingdom primarily. And you see the beauty of that, meaning that they could all read, they could all write, they could all do that. We don't know who could read or write in ancient Africa. Uh, people say, oh, well, literacy was reserved for a privileged few. No, you're looking through that with your silly Western eyes, where stupidity is how you keep people in line. These are Africans. So don't bring your silly lens down here with us. In fact, we could help civilize you, or we don't even use the word civilize. Humanize you, as the as the as the Greek would say, Plato is in his scholia. He says, you know, the Egyptian education helps you be more human. And the same breath, he says, the Greek education isn't fit for pigs. Anyway, go look it up yourself. Don't take my word. Don't take my word for nothing. This is the whole point. I was telling them that yesterday. Do your own research. 
But it set my eye. You get, it's very serene, it's very quiet. And of course, all that is there now are the stones. So you see the little enclosures where the people lived. They lived very simply. They had their food, they had their hearth, they had their beer, they had their enjoyments, but their job was to build for eternity. And so the question becomes, what are we after? What are we trying to build? We're trying to build human beings who can build for eternity. You can't build for eternity by looking only in the future and by anchoring yourself in the traumas of the present. You have to have the momentum of memory. And so, as the Apollo many used to say to us, you can't build a pyramid by dreaming. Now, you can write a song and you can put the pyramids on your album covers like Earth, Wind, and Fire, but you can't build that without having the skills and you don't get the skills quickly. You can't go on YouTube and figure out how to build a pyramid. No, you got to hang with some pyramid builders. You can't just write Metternature, those you taking down the baby, you know, you can't do it quickly. And as you do it, you begin to build the capacity and the thing is unlocked. There's a different rhythm to it. Part of surrounding our young people is helping them understand the rhythm of what we say, you know, black folk in the South, tarrying. You got to tarry. We, when we did that piece a couple of years ago, the power to pause, you got to sit with it. And so what I talked about, uh, I quoted Sundiata, uh, something that Jacob Carruthers quoted many years ago when he, at the invitation of Alton and Leo Maddox, gave a talk at the slave number one in Brooklyn. Um, he quoted Sundiata and as the, the jolly, the blood memory of Mali began to tell the story of how Mali came together. You know, the brother starts and the Korra, of course, is playing the same chord that we hear in the opening strains of Black Panther. And you hear the Korra playing, Baba, tell me a story. Except this ain't about a mineral that came from the sky and gave science fiction, you know, powers. He said, um, I am a jolly or blood. Since time immemorial, the Kayates have been in the service of the Kaita princes of Mali. We are vessels of speech. We are the repositories which harbor secrets many centuries old. The art of eloquence has no secrets for us. We are the memory of mankind, the memory of our people, the memory of community. By the spoken word, we bring to life the deeds and exploits of rulers for younger generations. I derived my, and this is why I picked this quote to, to, to talk on Thursday night at this let us make man celebration. The Jolly goes on and says, I derived my knowledge from my father who also got it from his father. History holds no mystery for us. I teach the kings the history of their ancestors so that the lives of the ancient might serve as an example. For the world is old, but the future springs from the past. My word is pure and free of all untruth it is the word of my father. It is the word of my father's father. I will give you my father's words exactly as I received them. Because jollies, because the memory keepers do not know what lying is. Mm. <laughs> that, let's just, now, now, I was in the bookstore again. I'm sorry, Atlanteans. We went to the bookstore yesterday in between commitments. The Aztec Congress hadn't started yet. And I already had this book, Bridge Across Jordan. But as you all know, this is another tip. 
that we already know, but some people may not know. If you're in a bookstore, you see a book like this, Bridge Across Jordan, Amelia Platt's Boynton Robinson. This is the same Amelia Robinson. She and her husband, who were in Selma, grew up, born and raised in Selma, who, of course, Amelia Robinson, we talk about Selma Bridge Crossing. Their son, Robert, went to Howard University, Boynton versus Virginia, which launches the Freedom Rides. <laughs> you understand whose anniversary was therefore yesterday, the beginning of the Freedom Rides, 1961. This is her. Lived over a century. When you see Obama down there going across the bridge when he was president, she's in one of the wheelchairs. The other one, of course, is our queen mother, Regent Adelaide Sanford. So this is Amelia Boyd Robinson. But of course, I had this book. So why would I get another copy? Well, it's signed <laughs> by Amelia Boynton. Right. Never, when you say a book like this, never let it go on the shelf. Just pick it up because you might want to give it to somebody or pick it up, see if it's signed. It was signed. Chapter 8. Dr. George Washington Carver. She met George Washington Carver. And I'm not going to read much about it. I want to read this because, again, service. George Carver could have been rich, even during segregation. He's friends with Henry Ford. We talked about that. Remember, some of the scholars speculate that Ford named his manufacturing uh, 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 enterprises plants as a tribute to Carver. And that's apocryphal. We don't know whether it's true or not, but we do know that they shared correspondence. They were, you know, friends. He would pick his brain. Henry Ford, you know, corresponded with George Carver. Carver spent his life at Tuskegee. He had to stay there. Carver's genius. Let's just read this. This is Amelia Boynton Robinson. As a teenager now, she's a little girl. Well, not a little girl, but she's at the age some of these Dunbar kids is asking Maggie, how much you make? Because that's the first question in their mind. Not service, but they'll get to service. That's why we're there, right? She says this. She said, one could never fully appreciate Dr. George Washington Carver, one of Tuskegee's most renowned professors, unless one had the opportunity to know him personally. In walking and talking with him as we did, we would see the light of hope for the world and feel the closeness of communication with God. His life stood out as one of forgetting self and wanting to give service particularly to the poor. Let me pause here for a minute to say, y'all know Professor Hunter and I, we might bat a couple of texts around, but we don't plan this. She said service. You see how this is all coming into the same thing? The ancestors don't make no mistakes. Ms. Robson goes on and says, as a pre-teenager, she wasn't even a teenager, as a pre-teenager, before I ever heard the name Tuskegee or Dr. Carver, our next door neighbor asked my mother to let me visit Georgia State, the black college on Thunderbolt Island near Savannah with her. I guess it would be Savannah State. Mother readily agreed. As we approached the auditorium, I heard a fine, shrill voice, and I could not decide if it was a man or a woman. If y'all ever hear, and there's some recordings of George Carver and some little bit of film. So his voice was very high. He knew he was castrated by these fine Americans in the Midwest. She goes on and says, I tried to giggle, but there was no one to giggle with me. As we approached our seats near the front, Seeing the speaker at the podium only added to my desire to giggle, but the atmosphere was so electrified with his presence that it rubbed off on me, and I calmed down enough to hear Dr. Carver talk. Teenagers, preteens, fidgeting, right? It ain't new. My heart of different ages. We know what that is. Spend some time with some elders and some young people around. We got room for you to be that way. We know how it is. She goes on and says Dr. Carver was explaining the many uses of the peanut. But first he told the story of his closeness with God and their conversation, which he later repeated in Selma at our farmer's conference and which shall never be erased 
from my mind. This is the last paragraph I'm gonna read right now. If we talk about our African states framework, this is governance. Who are we to each other? The social structure sees George Carver as a brilliant scientist and he did that, he pioneered in this. And they also clown him in the social structure. They say he invented all these uses for all these things and he gave them all the patents away. He never made any money. So they say, hey, stupid. Yeah, is that his objective though? Is that his objective in the governance formation? He's saying, I'm going to take this degree from Iowa. I'm going to take this chemistry training I have, and I'm never leaving the farm. And I'm going to help these sharecroppers. I'm going to help these farmers get a crop yield so they can get past you in debt. I'm going to help them feed their families and have more nutritious food out of the same soil they've been using now since they were brought here in these boats. I'm going to do that. And when I pass, I'm going to be buried a few feet from Booker Washington in front of the chapel at Tuskegee. And those of you who've been there like I have, you stand there and see this small, very thing. You see George Carver. You say, this man has gone on to the ancestors. But look at this. Amelia Robinson, preteen, sitting there wanting to giggle at the man's voice. But the thing was so heavy on her in terms of his presence, she got quiet and he said the following. She writes, his story was as follows. Before becoming a teenager in Diamond Grove, Missouri, after a refreshing spring rain, he strolled into a field beyond the plantation house to breathe God's refreshing air. It was a pleasant, warm evening. The field was partly surrounded by woods. The sun was making its way toward the west. The vegetation was glistening from the rain, and a beautiful rainbow spanned the skies. One thing about them Negroes that came through them segregated schools like Amelia Platts, Boyd, and Robson, oh, they knew the language. The English language is a garbage can language, but black people can make it sing. She goes on and says, he felt as near to God as he ever had. He gave a great sigh saying, quote, dear God, please make me wise to the wonders of this beautiful world's yields of the earth, end quote. God said, quote, if I make you wise to everything, you will be as wise as I, but name one of two things, end quote. Now, God talking to George Carver. Remember Carver used to say, when he said, how did you know that? He said, I get up in the morning and I pray and I walk and the plants tell me what they can do. That's what he said. All right, we continue. Ways of knowing. Y'all know that's the category we're talking about. God said, if I make you wise to everything, you'll be as wise as I. But name one of two things. And he said, George Carver said, dear God, make me wise to the peanut and the sweet potato. And he did. Ms. Robinson said, I can never forget that story. And the second time I heard him tell it 30 years later, it had an even greater impact on me. She goes on to talk about how Carver meant more to her family than he could ever know, her personal family. She talks about the impact he had. George Carver could have been a lot of places, even during segregation. He said, no, I'm a Tuskegee. But this is where my people need me. Service. Service. What did Mary Wright Edelman say? Out of South Carolina, service is the rent we pay for living. I think of it as service is the only reason to be here. Odu Ifa, the Yoruba people, uh, uh, Olisa and her face, she's initiate in, in Ifa. You know, you're on earth to work on your character. You know, you can die with a whole bunch of money. You can die with no money, but you're going to die. That awful day will surely come. And when it does, if you believe in an afterlife, where are you going to be? You're going to be with Brian Kemp and Donald Trump. Or you're going to be with Automatics and Leo Automatics. And believe me, they're in the same place. I mean, it depends on what you believe. I don't know. I know what they're not, though. They're not here with us physically. So, yeah, well, I mean, it's a lot more we talked about, but I'm not going to get too deep into that. I think, you know, it's just, I think George Carver and Amelia Boynton is a nice place to pause. Oh, I am. Um, <laughs> you know, Urias is working on some things. We're, there's so many things we're doing. 
And yes. you, you think of somebody who's like, yo, do you, do you ever get tired? Or it's like, you know, and I asked you, it was like vacation. You were like, what's that? Just a vacation. Right. And I think people don't, you know, when you found the thing you were put here to do mm -hmm. every day, you know, like I imagine Dr. Carver walking through yes. every morning, getting up. Oh. It is a joy and a pleasure and it feeds your soul. You can't get depressed, can't get sad about this because you have something to do and it and it drives and it and excites and it it feeds. Um, and I I feel sad for folk who are living an unpurpose filled life. I do too. Because, you know, in addition to working on your character, it's like, why am I here? That How question. And once you figure that out, it's, <laughs> it's you know, because you still got to deal with people. Sure. But 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 you still get to deal with people, you know. So you know, it's it's all it's all of it. And um, I just I, I don't know how we ended up here, but I know we were supposed to be here. So absolutely. I'm loving people adding their ways of knowing in the chat, talking about these different traditions. All the greatest elements of any faith tradition talk about this is service. Oh, who you got? Yeah, no, I'm gonna show it. I'm We're done. It. I'm gonna yeah, show we done. We've done for now. We pop the ASCAP conference. I think starts at 11. So we move some stuff around, and we're gonna um get into. Oh, I mentioned last week. I think we may do some of this in office hours on Monday night because this thing is continued to shift. I know you see how the BRICS countries are talking about maybe moving the currency. You know, we better be making connections. Don't be trying to lock, lock yourself off. But anyway, so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Now, and, and safe travels. Give everyone a warm uh, virtual hug for me. I'm Elbow. hugging everybody. Love, look, for me, you know, I'm not. Atlanta is your city. Yeah. Look, they got love for you down here. Well, I, got love for, I got love for Atlanta and Atlantans. And, and uh, but well, actually, I have love for all of the folk, you know. No question. It's a beautiful place to, to not have any boundaries or walls around. Yes. Uh, your community to know yes. that people anywhere in the world. When y'all go to Kemet, I guarantee you, you're going to see folk oh, in yeah. the streets that know you. No no question. No question. We, look, we're looking forward to it. We've seen some of the people down here and there. I'm telling you, it's it, it's such a, you're right. It's a beautiful thing. No boundaries. Yes. No. Well, I love you. Uh, um, be safe out in the streets. Uh, much prayers yeah. and, and application and all of the things for you. Yes. I'll see you in office hours on Monday. See you in office hours on Monday. Yeah, and I pass the love over to ASCAC. We so many people in Nubia there. Angie Porter gave this incredible piece on committee governance and Mario thing on the op. He did that in Nubia first. So yes. it was all here. So yeah, absolutely. I said, and, like, and those of you in Nubia, go down the rabbit hole in narrative uh, to learn, yes. especially those of you who are traveling to Kemet, start from the beginning. Uh, as much as cursive writing has been uh you know, at, at centered to why young people are not developing certain parts of their brain to learn meta nature, I think awakens oh. more than yes. what cursive writing does. It is yes. such a spiritual um, journey that you're on, and it's one that I didn't know I needed. So, you know, take it, how, how would we know, Pra? I mean, like I said, we can raise stuff, but I, since you brought that up, I just want to mention this because we were talking about that yesterday. Because one of the young people asked, you know, what, how do you, what is your practice? And I said, there was a young brother named, named Dylan. He was sitting in the corner. He going to Morehouse in the fall. High school students, finishing his senior year. He'd be graduating the next couple of weeks. By the way, congratulations to all the high school graduates. See them young boys, they're all coming out in the next couple of weeks. So I said, Dylan, normally I would be doing what you're doing. He was sitting in the corner instead of working, writing in his little notebook. I said, where did you learn about writing in your notebook? So he talked about how he saw people doing that. So he picked up a book and he, and he clerked. He worked in a court. 
And then one of the brothers who's a lawyer said, oh, I know that court. I know the judge. He said, what? He said, yeah, let's talk after. Okay, see, that's why we bring everybody together. You ain't even know. So anyway, I said, normally I'll be taking notes. I'm an inveterate note taker. I'm writing on note cards. I said, but I'm being very intentional not writing because I'm listening and trying to be in this moment. So we had this conversation. So as we were talking, I said, you're writing with the same thing I write with. You're writing with the 26 characters of the alphabet, replicating sounds, and then translating that into meaning. I said, but the metunetra is very different. You see, our ancestors did not write with 26 characters for sounds. They were writing with ideas. The mistake that is made in the social structure is people say, oh, see, they use pictures instead of, no, 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 no. Your letters don't tell you anything other than how a word sounds. You got to make the rest up. You know how hard it is to capture philosophy in a picture? How do you write love in Metternature? How do you write love in the Dinkra? How do you write cooperation? They're not just thinking about a sound and a word. They're, they're conveying an idea. When you use symbol, and you're right, bro, when you start learning Metternature, the whole world opens up. You're seeing a nose with a flare, reshwet. You can transliterate that. You can write joy. Or you can see this open nose and realize when you are really into a thing, your nose flares. It's an open, the air is coming into your mind. They thought about that. <laughs> so yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Love it. I love it. And I, I can't thank you enough. Uh, and we are gathering like the Avengers. All yes. these, uh, amazing uh, people. And I can't yes. wait for Dr. Black to come with the religious, uh, well, yes. I don't know if it's religion as much as he's going to do some something else. But yes, Dr. Black is coming. Yes. Uh, and I thank yes. you for the introduction. Uh, I just wanted to sit a little bit in community. I want people to hear D George Washington Carver's voice. Uh, yes. And know what that's like. So we're going to end with that and be safe out there in those streets. Yes. Love, you. Love you too. I am not sure that I am worthy of this splendid citation. But uh, I wish to say also that I thank you from the depths of my heart.